Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, the all-out struggle for truth disguised as an internet radio show. Burning up the internet airwaves since 2006, I'm Kevin Barrett of TruthJihad.com, where you can go to subscribe to my Substack uh, podcasts and other things. All right, I always try to find uh, interesting folks talking about all the important issues, but the big issue that got me going on this strange uh, quest was the 9-11 one. And since I was uh, summarily ejected from the Academy in 2006 for talking about it in the wrong way, I've been trying to talk about it in what I think is the right way and not find other people who can have worthwhile conversations on the topic as we're moving into the 20th anniversary of the, well, let's face it, the false flag that changed the world. There is a lot of hoopla and, of course, the usual celebration of the public myth and so on. And then the dissidents are also trying to make a little more noise than usual. So we're in that season. And one of the notable events of this 20th anniversary season is the release of The Outsider, a documentary by Steven Rosenbaum, which describes the behind-the-scenes struggles that went into the creation of the 9-11 Museum. And it's a more interesting story than I had realized, and it's a terrific film. So let's talk about it. Hey, welcome, Steve Rosenbaum. How are you, Steve? I am great. Thank you so much for having me. I should just say at the outset, I am the co-filmmaker, of, co-director of this film. Uh, my, my partner and business partner, Pamela Yoder, uh, is often behind the scenes but does a lot of the work. Um, <laughs> And, yeah, great. Uh, and and so your your hero, as it were, of this film, and I, I never would have expected to sort of identify with a, a hero uh, who had helped create the nine eleven museum, which of course I have a very low opinion of, to say the least, uh, is Michael Shulin, who along with Tom Hennis and a few others apparently wanted to create a much more interesting nine eleven museum than the one that we got. And so you tell the story about this, and how did you decide to tell this particular story? So in order to answer that question, I have to go back and, and give your listeners a little bit of a, a ramp to how we got here. Um, and, and one of the things that I appreciate about your show and about the conversation that we're having is we, you know, we all feel differently. Some of us feel one way. Some of us feel another. Some people think this is a conspiracy. Some people think this was. But that conversation is incredibly healthy, you know, and anything that is done to limit that or don't let people not have free speech, I think is, is troubling. And we'll, we'll get to how we found that out. But let, let me tell the story of the making of the film because I think your listeners will find it interesting. So the morning of September 11th, uh, Pam and I owned this rather large film and television production company in New York. We had um, 180 employees and our clients were a&E, the History Channel, Court TV, Discovery, HBO, MTV, CNN, MSNBC, uh, all nonfiction documentary work. And we were prepared on that fateful morning to start a series for Animal Planet called Dog Days. It was about single New Yorkers and their journey with their dogs to find love in the big city. Um, clearly not a serious, heavy project. Um, when, when we saw the, the first plane hit, we, we were at Fifth Avenue and 28th Street, and we looked downtown, and we saw the smoke rising, and I remember very clearly, we gathered everyone, we had seven camera crews all geared up that day, we gathered everyone in the uh, conference room, and we said, listen, if you need to go home and be with your family, we understand, and all seven 
crew said, no, no, we're staying. And I said, all right, well, we're going to go downtown and we're going to film. And we all had camera and gear and tape. Uh, but as they were leaving, I said two things. Get inside the police cordon and don't leave because they won't let us. We didn't have press credentials. They're not going to let us back in. Call us and we'll bring you tape and batteries and hand it over to the barricades. Um, and I and then some young filmmaker turned to me and said, well, what should we shoot? And I said, in what will turn out to be the best directorial advice of my career, there'll be all these news cameras down there. So just see where they're pointing and point in the opposite direction. <laughs> I love it. And, yeah. Um, I don't know where that came from. I don't think I learned that in school. But um, when the when the day ended, these seven crews came back and they'd been shooting for the better part of the day. Um, and we set up a black piece of cloth and we sat them all in front of the camera and we interviewed each one of them about what they saw and what they experienced. And we started almost immediately trying to make a film. Oh, well, no, to be clear, we said, someone said, what do we do tomorrow? And all of the business in the company had vanished in that, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but the, the kind of conventional television production business was essentially non-existent for six months. So we had no work for any of these people who all had, you know, families to feed. And so we said, um, well, we're going to shoot tomorrow. And somebody said, how long? And I said, again, making the, making the stuff up as you go along. I said, we're going to shoot for seven days. And so we did. And we shot for seven days and we then, I edited a little bit of a film together and I showed it to one of my colleagues and he said, this is truly terrible. And I said, oh, I know, it's very sad. So, and he said, no, it's a terrible film. And he said it was terrible because it didn't sound like New York. I mean, most of the people that worked for us were NYU film students. And he said, it sounds like a bunch of rich, privileged white kids. Um, and that was painful. And so we put an ad in the Village Voice and said, if you saw 9-11 and made any video, we'd like to meet you. And it turned out that lots of people had recorded video on that day, and they'd all called either CNN or, or CBS and been told rather harshly, you know, we're covering today's news. We're covering the anthrax or whatever the day three news was. There was no interest in buying this footage. And so we licensed all of it, essentially everything that came in the door, uh, and interviewed about 40 people. And that became a film called Seven Days in September. Um, there's a reason I'm telling this story, which is we ended up acquiring what is thought, what is reported by the New York Times to be the world's largest archive of 9-11 video. And then our phone started ringing and it was this strange voice and they said, we need your footage, we need your footage, we need your footage, we're building a museum. And I remember at least once or twice I hung up on them because they felt like stalkers and there was no museum and I didn't really want to be in the 9-11 business. Um, but eventually, years later, I, well, no, not years later, but I guess months, somewhere, I don't remember the date, but somewhere between years and months, I was in the, a yellow school bus riding down the West Side Highway and to take my son and his class uh, to Ellis Island. And I 
turned around and looked once we got to Ellis Island at Lower Manhattan. And I called up this guy who'd been bugging me. And I said, okay, I think we're going to donate the footage to you. And this was turned out to be, I figured out later, Michael Shulin. Um, and he said, well, what do you want from us? And I said, without skipping a beat, we want to make the story about the construction. And, and, and I'm telling your audience this because we didn't come into this thinking that we were doing an investigative report or we were going to uncover some unknown truth. We thought this was going to be kind of a straight ahead construction documentary about building this place. And we thought it was going to be cheap to make and essentially four years shooting about a day a week. We thought it was going to be essentially low budget, no budget film. Um, but whatever you think about the museum, and we'll, we'll get to that in a bit, um, the actual construction project, the curation and construction project was massive. And you couldn't shoot two hours one day a week and capture anything. And so we ended up hiring two full-time camera crews and we had keys to the building and we had unlimited access. And, and what that means is, you know, I tell people, if you hang around backstage at a rock concert long enough, they start to think you're with the band. And everyone assumed that we worked for the museum. And so we were let in everything. And that's where this film, The Outsider, came from, was that footage. So you were sort of outsiders who got to be insiders for a while, too, sort of like Michael Shulin was. Well, yes, that's that's entirely right. Never heard it said that way, but that's a good analysis. Michael didn't start out as an outsider, uh, or he would argue. Um, you may or may not remember that in the days after 9-11, there was this photo exhibit that cropped up in Soho, and it was called um, Here is New York, and it was the first crowd-curated photo exhibit. And Michael owned this little storefront that was empty, and he and some partners owned the storefront. And so people started coming in and putting their pictures up. And so Michael became kind of a de facto curator. When they hired him, I met him on the first day he was on the job. We were in Seven World Trade, um, in the new Seven World Trade, and it was some party on the 20th floor. It just it had just opened, and Michael walked up to me and said, "Oh, you're the film guy, aren't you?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, you should interview me quick because they're going to fire me the day after tomorrow." And I was like, "All right, I'll take the bait." And so we interviewed him the next day, um, and that is there's a big chunk of the film that was actually recorded in that first interview. Um, but his title was creative director. And while his role changed and his feeling about the museum changed over years, he never was fired and he never left. And he was there opening day. And that was his last day, though. So we've debated the phrase. I originally said last day, and he pushed back on that. He said he's been back since. He's been there a couple of times, but it was the last day he got paid. Well, that was the that was how he described it. But yes, I mean he's effectively the last day. Right. Um, so so it's it's a construction documentary at first, and now it morphs into something else. Uh, and a lot of the discussion 
in, in, the, in the film is, is about how Michael wants, you know, he wants a more open narrative, uh, as well as, you know, he has different creative ideas from Alice Greenwald, the director and, and the management. Uh, and, and some of that is fleshed out, but some of it isn't so much. So may, maybe you can in sort of uh, describe uh, how Michael you know, came to have that uh, relationship with Alice. Um, well, you know, Alice told me and Alice told anyone who would listen in those first, you know, couple of years that it was going to be a very different kind of museum. It was going to be evolving. There would be lots of opportunity for people to ask questions and dig deep and learn from evidence that they had uncovered. Um, and something changed about two years in and Michael's the way Michael describes it. He says, originally it was a museum of question marks and over time it became a museum of periods. And, you know, I think that for those of your listeners who've been to the museum, I'm guessing it's not a lot of them, uh, it, it's, it, it, the museum clearly tries to quantify history. It wants you to be able to go in and come out knowing what happened with absolute certainty. Uh, and that, you know, Michael had a problem with that. The New York Times had a problem with that. The Washington Post had a problem with that. Tom Hennis had a problem with that. And other senior staff privately would say they were uncomfortable by the, the narrowing of the story. Now, when you talk about the narrowing of the story, are you explicitly referring to the kinds of questions raised by such family members as Bob McElvain, who, after a lot of investigation, agrees with the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth that his son Bobby died by being blown up by the explosives that were involved in demolishing uh, the North Tower? Um, I, I think so. I want to be careful here. You know, I, as a filmmaker, you know, I, I'm I'm pretty scrupulous about not taking sides uh, on on any of the various feelings or theories about what happened or what didn't happen. What I do feel deeply about is that you and your listeners should have the right to go in and look at the evidence that was gathered with with the same granularity you know, as people that are trying to tell a different story. And, you know, one of the things I believe about history is, you know, it changes over time. History is not, you know, you know, what we feel about Vietnam is different today than what we felt, you know, you know, 30 years ago. And there's a whole series of rather important pieces of American history that evolve and are rethought and re-litigated and, when we when we donated the archive to the museum, you know, we my wife and I are the single largest donors of video. We are the founding archive of the museum, and and we believed that that archive would be available for your members and your listeners, just as well as anyone else, to go in and look at it, you know, critically and ask questions and say, wait a minute, where is this? You know, I mean, and I've read everything there is to read about you know, all the different perspectives on 9-11. We didn't think that our footage proved or disproved anything as much as we thought that having it available to the public in 20 years or 30 years or 50 years would be really valuable. And so when we found out that if you'd go down to the museum and say, I'm a researcher and I'd like to come in and use this material, um, they will send you a contract 
and that contract you will have to sign. And in that contract, it will say that anything you create has to be reviewed by them and can be modified by them and can't be released to the public unless they approve it. It sounds like this, what the CIA does with agents who want to write books. It's um, Here's what's puzzling about it. Um, there is no example of any other museum in the United States that we've been able to find that controls, you know, legitimate bona fide access to their archive in that way. Um, and that includes, by the way, the Holocaust Museum. And we checked on this. And the Holocaust Museum said to us quite clearly, if you arrive and say, we're I'm making a book about, you know, the Holocaust and I don't believe it happened and I'm a denier and I want to access your 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 materials to prove my point, they will let you in. They won't ask to review what you write. They won't try and edit it. You know, they they and and that's kind of at the basis what muse, museum making is supposed to be about is about, you know, litigate about, you know, investigating archives. And um, I can't explain to you why they don't allow that. Well, I, I could I, I offer a couple of guesses, but um, I'm sure you've already thought of them, uh, such as the uh, likelihood that there is some very damning material in those archives that would uh, add to the kind of cumulative case made by the many, many dozens of scholars who have published peer-reviewed articles uh, supporting the thesis of the 9-11 truth movement, that this was a false flag event. So through another project I worked on years ago, um, I'm an acquaintance of former U.S. Senator Bob Kerry, um, who was the governor of Nebraska and then U.S. Senator. And so when the film, you know, we've been very gingerly sharing the film with people in advance of the premiere. And I said to him, would you like to screen it? And he said, yes. And you may remember that Bob Kerry was on the 9-11 Commission. Um, and two important things. One, he was very complimentary about the film, which was not a foregone conclusion. And he is one of the two people from the 9-11 Commission who has said publicly that he doesn't believe the connection between, you know, what happened and the Saudi Arabian government has been properly investigated. So, I mean... There are lots of questions, um, and they come from lots of different sectors, but I'm not sure what we gain as a nation by not answering them. Well, uh, just to play devil's advocate here, uh, what we gain by not answering questions whose answers would be beyond disturbing to the ordinary American is we gain social stability at the price of maybe truth and integrity and long-term viability. And I, I mean, this isn't the only issue like this. I know, Steve, I don't know how much history, you know, red pill history you've looked at, but there are <laughs> plenty of issues that have, have, for instance, I just before this interview, I interviewed somebody who has done immense research on the Rambo uh, conspiracy theory that prisoners were left behind in Vietnam. And you, you can spend only a few hours uh, on that one and discover that it's almost certainly true. And that top administrations, you know, from Nixon on down, have deliberately covered up the fact that they left about half of the prisoners that the North Vietnamese had to uh, to slowly or not so slowly die there, um, rather than pay the reparations that Nixon had promised them. And that's just one example. We talk about assassinations of the Kennedys and on and on and on. Um, and so, just the devil's advocate answer would be that, of course, we can't let anybody get anywhere near the truth on this sort of thing. 
Yeah, you know, at the same time, if you look at the last 20 years in American history um, and you look at the two wars and you look at the Patriot Act and you look at tapping of phones and all of these things, you know, it's I don't think anyone would argue that in the 20 years since 9-11, we feel safer or that we feel, you know, like we somehow accomplished something. You know, I mean, it, what, and what troubles me about that is and this is where the film ends up at the very end. Uh, you know, the, I think the, I think I understand why the museum was built the way it was built. You know, I think New York was deeply damaged. I think it was, it had a scar in it in lower Manhattan that was both incredibly painful and very expensive. And, you know, the city wanted to repair itself. And I think decisions were made quickly that in hindsight, you know, cut corners. That being said, the good news is who says that's the final statement? I mean, you know, if you were and your group were to go down to the memorial and decide you wanted to speak out about any of the issues that you're concerned about, security would come over and tap you on the shoulder and lead you off the property and say, this is private property and we don't allow people to demonstrate here. Well, there's nowhere else in the city of New York that I'm aware of where you can't stand on a, 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 a soapbox, not a literal soapbox, but a virtual soapbox and speak your mind. Central Park, Washington Square Park, Madison Square Park. But the, but the memorial, you know, says this is sacred ground and therefore we can't allow free speech. Well, that doesn't make a bit of sense to me. Right. Well, it actually does make sense if you've studied um, mythology and uh, the, the kind of thing that Philip Zillico, the executive director of the commission, uh, calls the creation and maintenance of public myths, which is how he described his academic specialty. That is uh, that um, the sacred uh, sacred ground and, and the idea of, of things being sacred, it often comes out of uh, mass uh, sacrificial bloody events that then get remembered in usually a, a false way, an extremely false, diametrically opposed to truth kind of way. Rene Girard, the greatest scholar on these things, said that all history is and all human culture is based on a murder and a lie. So uh, if something is sacred, that is precisely you know what you can't criticize. It's where you can't dissent, yep. and you will be arrested as a heretic for uh, for dissenting. And so uh, I think you're, the people in the film, like Philip Kennicott of the Washington Post, who observed that this thing is being built as a religious temple, that there it's like a cathedral full of sacred relics. Uh, it's got the religious tropes of light and dark above and below. It's it's creating that kind of of you know, sacred aura and the modern American inquisition will come and shut you up if you're a heretic there. So it, it actually makes perfect sense. So we're, so the film was finished in May and we're just now starting to do screenings, small screenings. Um, the, I believed and Pam and I agreed that, that we were going to focus on these five characters and that we weren't going to get distracted by, oh, there's a shiny object over there. There's a, and that requires quite a bit of you know, focus and diligence. And so one of the decisions we made was that we were not going to include the families. We didn't have access to them. 
It was fraught with emotion. We didn't need extra characters in the film. And so the families have a very small part in the actual finished film. Um, I, one of Sally Renegard, one of the family leaders reached out to me and said, can we organize a screening for my group? And we did, but with great reticence. And in fact, before the screening, Pam and I both were on camera and we should, we did it on zoom and we said, we just want to let you know this film wasn't made for you. We don't think you're going to find it watchable. We don't hold anybody. You know, if anyone drops off or shuts their computer down or can't watch it or that's totally fine. We understand. Um, and we apologize. Some of the scenes are very hard to watch. And we, you know, we, 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 we made as many excuses for ourselves as we could. So we screened the film. It's 83 minutes long. And we, you know, on Zoom, you can see when people drop off a call. So I kept expecting people to drop off, but nobody did. And we got to the end and Sally paused and she said, well, I think I speak on behalf of everyone when I just say one thing. Thank you. And both Pam and I were like rattled by that because we were we were so steeled to be, you know, this scene is too, you went too far, you showed things you shouldn't have said. And I will tell you, I've now spoken to three family groups. And, I'm, and to be clear, the families do not speak in a united voice. They have different feelings, just like your listeners are not a united voice. Um, the families are so angry and disappointed and feel betrayed by the museum um, and feel that the museum, I mean, they're among, among things they're angry about, um, they, at least the groups we've spoken to, believe they were promised that the unidentified remains would be above ground. And they cannot, for the life of them, understand why their loved ones would be put in what they call uh, painfully the basement and why they have to go through and relive the day of 9-11 going through the museum to get to the coroner's um, you know, refrigeration area so that they can have a moment with the unidentified remains. Totally unexpected. Everything we were told during the making of the film is, this is for the families, the families wanted this, this was what we did. Like, like time and time again, we were told these decisions were being made for the families. Very interesting. Yeah, that uh, it seems that they've uh, well, they, it, it's weird that they were actually turning this into sort of a almost like a, a crypt with sacred relics, uh, including the pieces of these people's bodies, uh, and at the same time an educational museum. And that that kind of you know t- tension between the two seems to have been resolved in favor of uh, a Philip Zelico style public myth museum without much sensitivity even to the feelings of the the family members of the people that are being memorialized. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that was their reaction. What, what's the chance of changing any of this, though? It seems like it's all, I mean, the museum is set in stone. Uh, even changing something as relatively minor as just giving us the right to protest on the grounds. What, what would it take to get that or any other sorts of changes at this point? Well, I'm an unfailing optimist. Um, you know, if you look around the country and you see all of these statues coming down, you know, that didn't happen in 20 years. And you may agree with some and not with others or maybe none. But but clearly, you know, the people's tolerance for change changes over time. I think I think I think there's a bunch a bunch of questions to unpack in that question. The first is, 
it's worth being clear about the fact that this is not a public museum. It's not run by the National Park Service. The reason there's a $24 ticket price is because the museum has a $60 million a year budget, which has to be met by tickets and by the gift shop. And, and where um, does that budget come from? Let's follow the money here. Whose idea was this museum? I'm, I'm very suspicious of that, and the film didn't answer that question. No, I don't think we knew to ask it. To be Well, and to be clear, it was an observational documentary, so it wasn't an investigative film. And someone else will make an investigative film, but it won't be us. Uh, I think... Um, well, you have to remember that when the museum was being designed and initial construction, Michael Bloomberg had two roles. He was the mayor of the city of New York, and he was also the largest donor, donor to the museum. And he remains the chairman of the museum board to this day. Um, the, the back of the envelope math, which needs to be confirmed by the museum before I would call it a fact, is at a $24 ticket price, my sources say that before COVID, they were trending to be about 3 million visitors a year. So if that's true, that's $72 million, of which 60 of it would go to the overhead and another 10 or 12 would go into you know, some kind of a, of a slush fund or you know, protective fund. I don't know any of that to be a fact. Um, and we've reached out to Alice you know, Greenwald to ask her to come on the panel that we're doing. And um, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, we, we, you know, we've, we've reached out to trustees. We'd like to hear the museum's perspective on this, but so far we've not. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, we should get back to that in a second. But uh, first, let, let me ask about the, um, the, the part of the film that discusses how, who would get credit for 9-11 as it was put, the portraits of the hijackers and some of the family members didn't like having them in the same place with their loved ones. And then there's this discussion, a, br a brief uh, segment of the film mentions the local mosque uh, was not too happy about some of the language, about is it militant Islam, you know, the militant uh, Muslim movements, jihad, and that sort of thing. And so the, I think somebody says, we have to try to tell the story of Al-Qaeda respectfully and honestly, and so on and so forth. And of course, what strikes me about this, and I mean, I, I don't know how aware you are of these things, but... You know, I, I was the only Muslim at the mosque in Madison, Wisconsin, that didn't in, immediately just assume that, of course, this is a false flag. Uh, every other one, they all just, everybody knew it, right? And I was like, well, come on, let's, let's wait a little bit until more information develops. But that's pretty much the, you know, the polls say that it's 60, 70% of Muslims in the U.S. and 75, 80% worldwide feel that way. Uh, in Pakistan, I think it's, it's, 2% of the population thinks Al-Qaeda did it. So uh, the Muslim perspective on 9-11 is pretty straightforward, which is that Muslims were set up to take the rap by the enemies of Islam, uh, and that they are obviously the real victims. And according to Dr. Gijin Polya, uh, who's an expert in such matters, close to 30 million Muslims have been murdered uh, in the 9-11 wars, driven by this lust for revenge. Now that So that perspective, of course, uh, obviously isn't going to be very well represented in the film, but it's it's interesting that this this whole project of this museum is driven by supposedly uh, memorializing victims. But you know who are the real victims here, and and you know how how could you have worked that into the film if you wanted to? So a couple of couple of things. Um, there's a, a gentleman in New York who you may or may not know. Do you know Todd Fine? 
Uh, no, I don't think so, I do. So he's a historian, and uh, he is the leader of a group of multicultural thinkers, and they are in the process of protesting rather publicly because they believe the museum uh, essentially amplifies uh, um, uh, Islamophobia. Um, and that scene that you just described is incredibly meaningful for him and his group because they think it proves exactly what they feared. And one of his issues, which I did, which I've not confirmed, but they claim that there, if you go to the museum, the, the map and the entryway, all of the paperwork that you can get as a visitor is in all kinds of languages, uh, but not in Arabic. Um, wow. which, you know, is, you know, I, that doesn't surprise me. And, and that's um, kind of bizarre because Arabic is, I think, the world's maybe fourth most spoken language. You know, here's what I don't know the answer to. Um, I, I want to be careful because I have my own theories about things, but um, as a filmmaker, they're not they're not relevant here. Um, I think that we try. So almost everyone who sees the film comes away wanting to know more feeling like it opens their eyes to certain things and then says a version of what you said, which is, well, why is that scene in the conference room where they're talking about the, um, the rise of Al Qaeda? Why is that not longer? You know, or someone else says, why is the gift shop? Scene? And, and, and that makes Pam and I very happy because, you know, it, it if you're going to do an 83 minute film you and you're going to do it over seven years, um, I, I think I may have not told you this, um, that we have, from shooting for seven years, uh, 670 hours of material. Wow. I, I don't know if I want to sit through that screening. Yeah, no, I don't think, well, and in fact, it's funny. As we were editing the film, we would get to a scene and we'd find that, oh, we wish we had something where the these characters, I'm like, oh, wait, wait, try that day. And we'd pull up a reel and we'd be like, wow, we've never seen this. Like there's, I mean, it's not, it's not possible to have, seen and remember 670 hours of footage. Um, so we see new things every day. Um, but, but, but here's, I think there's a, there's a scene in the film. It's the day, it's, it's the day of nine 11. Um, the, the, the ceremony is going on off on the plaza and there is a whole vocal protest community that has risen up kind of slightly behind police barricades. Um, over toward the east side. And, you know, they, there are sayings and T-shirts and protesters. And when Todd saw that, he said to me, um, or actually it, um, someone who saw it said to me, you know what I like about the fact that you included that in the film? And I'm like, what? And they're like, you didn't make fun of anybody. You let them say their piece. Yeah, and I'm like, I, had the, I had the same reaction. Well, of course, I mean, of course we did. And by the way, I mean, to be fair, when you have that many people protesting with different points of view, you know, one way to look at it, if you're cynical, is, you know, these kooky protesters. But we actually thought that, like, that those voices being kept out were, was troubling. And we didn't, and to this day, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that you make people's concerns about that day go away by listening to them. But I don't think you gain anything by trying to marginalize those voices. Right. Well, I, I was there at several of those uh, memorials on September 11th at Ground Zero. I might even have been there when you were filming some of those that we see in the film. 
and and at one of them uh, there was a huge turnout. I forget which year it was. It might have been like two thousand seven, eight, nine, something like I think seven. Uh, yeah, and and. It was just a sea of black t-shirt, black 911 truth t-shirts. You know, that was the the theme of the year. Was everybody's going to wear a black truth t-shirt? And the, we dominated the, the whole. The whole memorial was mostly 911 truthers, or at least a, you know, half or more. A huge turnout, and uh, it, that was around the time that Newsweek pointed out that what 36 percent of the American people think it's likely or very likely that 911 was a false flag designed to legitimize these pre-planned wars. So it's it, it's to me it, it's kind of bizarre that there's anybody that that would think that oh this is a very marginal thing and and these people shouldn't be allowed to speak it's it's really the reason that they shouldn't be allowed to speak is because it's not marginal it's so widespread and we found out the results now haven't we with COVID nobody believes the authorities anymore and so we're all you know vote, we're voting for Trump and we're we're uh, believing that COVID is a hoax because. Uh, we've been lied to so much we don't believe it anymore. So, uh, and, and 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 by the way, n- not to, you know, I also think that nine eleven um, has an unfortunate place on the on the calendar. So we're talking about this in August, which is very unusual. Generally speaking, the public's appetite for nine eleven begins on nine six, and ends on nine twelve, and it's this. You know, cause it's August and people are on vacation and all the journalists are, you know, all the B team is working cause the A team's all on vacation and then people get back and it's back to school and then there's the long weekend. And like it's this, it's been allowed to be this thing that you can speak about for essentially four or five days, you know, in September. And, um, I mean, trying to talk about 9-11 on 9-12 or 9-15 is, as somebody who's you know sold a film and is now going to be seen worldwide, I can tell you the decision that we made to distribute the film in August, start it in August, and begin to have conversations like this in August is because we want to give people permission to have the conversation, you know, 12 months a year. And we don't think it should be marginalized into this absurd little sliver. That's a great point. And, and in terms of just the uh, logistical timing of it, I think it's great to have the conversations get going now so they can build up a little bit. Uh, yeah. And when it comes time for the media full court press and the blitzkrieg of, of establishment 9-11 memorials uh, during those five days or so, it, at least there will have been that buildup and maybe you'll get actually a little bit bigger piece of, of the uh, attention mix. Well, um, although I will say we know every film that's being made uh, we've seen most of them, and they are, by and large, somber, look-back, historic, you know, heroes, first responders. You know, I was in elementary school and blah, blah. I mean, they're, they, are, they are of a certain beat. There, there are one or two exceptions to that. Um, but generally speaking, um, they are uh, um, honorific, not investigative. And those will all be forgotten very soon, and, and yours probably won't. I think yours will have a much longer shelf life, thanks to the approach that you've taken. Uh, um, well, I, I, so, I, which brings me to something important. So, you know, distri- distributing this film has been challenging. Um, we spent, you know, a year and a half negotiating with Netflix, and we couldn't get a deal done after coming very close twice. Um, and you know, we're in theaters beginning on. 
uh, on August 20th. And then we're on iTunes and we're on Google Play and we're on Amazon Video Direct. The distributor, who's fantastic, came to us about six weeks ago and said, what if I told you I could get you in 2.8 billion homes? And I'm like, okay, I think I didn't hear you right. You meant million. He goes, no, I meant billion. And I'm like, okay, how would that happen? And he said, we've been negotiating with Facebook, and we are going to be the first ticketed movie premiere in every market in the world on Facebook. Crazy. So so who knows what that will mean for our little film? I mean, uh, you know, you know, when you think about 2.8, I'm not a math major, but if you look at 2.8 billion and then you look at kind of 0.001% of that, it's still a massive audience. Yeah, that's that's wild. Well, congratulations. I, I really hope that works out well because this would be a great film to actually get people uh, talking about. And Facebook has started censoring folks on a lot of issues in the last few years, but hopefully there's enough room for a film like this. Um, and I'll be at a film festival actually on 9-11, which is the, the 9-11 Truth Film Festival at the Grand Lake Theater in Oakland, California. That's been an ongoing annual event for many, many years. You could almost shoehorn this in there if you were willing to entertain questions for people like me uh, during the Q&A, but I think it's it's probably unfortunately too late this year. Uh I don't think anything's too late. We just, as of today, were selected in the 9-11 Families for Peace and Justice Festival. Um, let us know who to contact, and we'll talk to them today. But, but, but I will say this about, about the Facebook decision. And by the way, we're not naive about the controversies around Facebook as a platform. Um, first of all, they, the film has been reviewed, and it's going to be premiered. It's that there's no editing. There's no changes. Um, I think... If you think about what it would take for a filmmaker to get, you know, part of filmmaking that's hard is you say, oh, I want to be in all the English speaking countries in the world. OK, well, that's a deal in the UK and then a deal in Ireland and then a deal in Australia, then a deal in France. And each one of those deals takes time and money and effort and negotiations and they have different requirements. It's a so when you start getting into the smaller markets outside of, you know, six or eight big countries, you say, oh, you know, is it really worth it? Like, do I really want to battle to be in, you know, X, Y, Z? And the answer is probably not because you're not you're going to get one screen in, you know, Lithuania. Um, the th this distribution strategy really changes the game because we will be, you know, well, at this point we know for sure a hundred countries, and that's a brand that's a brand new thing for alternative point of view film especially alternative point of view about 9-11. I mean, this is really, it's been extremely taboo, you know, for, uh, well, ever since I got into this thing in, in 2005. So congratulations on that. Uh, so, so let me ask you a question. Um, and, and at the, at the risk of putting you on the spot, um, I think one of the things that's hard about having rational conversations about 9-11 is that there are, there's this whole panoply of voices, um, that are so I just I'll give you my one here's here's my one uh somewhere on the internet if you google around you will find a rather detailed website about me that claims that I work for the CIA and that all of my video was manufactured and that I'm part of the 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 fake the fake 911 story and you know I 
I have a I, couple of paranoid friends who may, who probably would would almost entertain that sort of thought. Yeah. Uh, listen, it doesn't bother me. I think free speech is free speech, but it makes it hard to, if, you know, it. One of the things I think that makes it hard is that the voices. So you know, I, by the way, I'll just I'll give your your audience a little bit of inside information. I do not work for the CIA. Hey, uh, I, well, wait a minute. <laughs> but if you did, you that's exactly what you would tell us. <laughs> uh, yeah. If, see, yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I would be out trying to. Uh, but, but, you know, it's like, it's why I've been really careful to be about free speech and lack of censorship and open exchange of ideas because, you know, there are, there's a whole range of different theories. I mean, we, by the way, we've gone, good, good for us, we've gone 40 some minutes without talking about Building 7. That's, yeah, that's amazing. And it's a violation <laughs> of the first rule of 9-11 truth activism. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, you know, the museum would have you believe that they address it, but it's, you know, often a corner and, you know, in small type and with low, you know, I mean, it's really not addressed. Um, and, yeah, I mean, and, you know, yeah, so, so you were asking me a question about, uh, yeah. about, well, about the, all of these how, weird points how, of view. Yeah. How do we, how do we raise intelligent conversation about the facts that you're aware of and clearly you're, you know, scholarly and careful about how you, without it being drowned out by, you know, um, more extreme but less fact-based theories. Well, it's really tough, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's a real challenge for me since I have to sit here doing internet radio and broadcasting and write, writing. I've been doing this since 2006. I can't work in the academy anymore. So I have to keep uh, working on this case and I have to try to make it interesting and even a little bit entertaining now and then to keep people interested. And I can't just keep saying building seven, building seven, building seven over and over like Richard Gage does. Uh, so I have to, you know, what I've done is, is to try to look at all sorts of alternative perspectives on important historical events and get a lot of different voices on, especially the ones who have something useful to say. Uh, but it, it, it is, uh, it's, it's a challenge to not get drawn off into unproductive areas that may actually be, be, uh, d deliberately, uh, baited as, as a kind of a trap for people. Like I, I have an uncle who is an engineer who ran the electric and water utility for a major city. And he believes in the flat earth theory because he's getting a little bit old and he caught him, he caught these flat earth videos on his big screen TV. So I sat down with him for several days and watched a lot of flat earth videos. Somebody's spending millions and, you know, tens of millions of dollars making high production values flat earth videos. Obviously somebody has spent more money on five or 10 minutes of the best flat earth videos than all of the 9-11 truth video makers mm. combined. Who is that? Um, so I, I think, you know, as Cass Sunstein, Obama's informations are said, uh, we need to stop 9-11 truth. In the future, we'll have to make, we may have to make it illegal. But in the meantime, what we need to do is disable the purveyors of conspiracy theories by injecting, uh, you're infiltrating, uh, conspiracy groups and injecting beneficial cognitive diversity into those groups. From his perspective, flat earth theory is beneficial cognitive diversity. Uh, some paranoid, uh, saying that Steve Rosenbaum works for the CIA is beneficial cognitive diversity. You get everybody fighting and, uh, saying outlandish. Interesting. Or 
And so I, I think that's what's going on. I think that's what, that's why the conversation is so crazy. So, by the way, that's exactly what I hoped you'd say, and it's why, you know, so what's funny about the screenings of the film is almost to a person, every screening we've done has said, we like the film, but we wish you'd focused more on fill in their issue blank here. Mm-hmm. And we think that's a massive win because yeah. the, fil- the, the film isn't meant to answer the questions. It's meant to raise them. The film isn't meant to say, ah, this is why the museum is underground or this is why the names were underground and then brought up. to. It's to say, you know what? These questions are valid. They deserve to be asked. And so I, I'm I am optimistic that that if the museum's intention is to limit free speech and continue to replicate a, a fairly simplistic narrative, which is we got punched and we stood back up and, you know, we feel like we're somehow, you know, been injured. Um, I, I, I'm, I think you'll see, um, I have some theories about what, what will happen post 9-11 this year, but I think you'll see some openness and some consideration that, that will, you know, will invite different voices into some kind of a, a conversation. How will that happen specifically? Well, um, I think I told you I did a screening with museum curators. So I had 10 museum curators and I, you know, I, I hadn't chosen them. They weren't selected. A third party had pulled together some curators. I was told kind of off the record, a bunch of them were supporters of the museum and they might actually be adversarial. And I said, the purpose wasn't to have the people around the table be, um, you know, supporters of ours or supportive of any point of view that in the film, um, to a person, to a man and a woman, when the film ended, um, they all believed the film asked good questions about why the museum was private, why the museum limited access to research material, why they made people sign releases. I mean, these came from them. This was not, um, these, these, these so these issues, I think, um, are now starting to kick around at an intellectual level where they can't be left unanswered. I mean, who are the people on this board of trustees that runs this institution? How do they get chosen? Who chooses them? Do they, do they cycle out over time? I mean, there's, I don't have the exact number. It's about 40 trustees and they are far and away, um, New York based male, white and moneyed. No big surprise there. Well, was for me. I mean, and it took, by the way, their picture, the pictures of the trustees are not on the website. So it took a couple of hours of taking the names, putting it into Google, finding a picture, you know, to get a, to get a, a, a look at what the trustees looks like is not an easy task. Yeah, it's amazing. So you, you, I assume you didn't, uh, add a clause to whatever paperwork was involved with your donation of your footage to the museum, allowing you or those you designate to have scholarly access to the material, uh, I guess. They, so they just totally own it outright now. Well, no, they don't own it. We, we, they own the museum rights, non-exclusive, and we own the film and television rights. So we could still send it all to you. Um, 
But but the but the question and we think about this a lot is why did we not? I mean, the contract is long. Why didn't we not include that the public's right to it is guaranteed? And the answer is because it was unheard of to think that you would put things in a public archive and it would then be restricted. And in fact, I've asked the museum who who is doing these reviews of this material. I mean, before and making a judgment about what's right. And and they said, well, it was originally the 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 curatorial staff, but they got overwhelmed. So then we handed it to the PR department, but they didn't want to do it. So now it's handled by the lawyers. Hmm. And I'm oh, like, boy. so the lawyers are reading history. They have no background and, and making judgments about what can and can't be released. Um, I, oh, I think all we need to do to get that addressed is shine a bright light on it. Okay, well, it sounds like you've got a big enough audience for this film. If that Facebook thing uh, comes through the way we think it will, that could give you a pretty bright light to shine on it. Uh, so, oh, yeah. so, yeah. so, let, wait, wait, hold on. Let me, let me. So the, the, so you'll never find it on Facebook. You have to Google and whatever. It's very simple. It's theoutsider.film. The outsider. And that website. Film. Okay. And the the ticket price is a is a a a, a bank busting three dollars and ninety nine cents. Uh, and you know, we are, we are going to announce a charitable organization that will be a significant, uh, recipient of ticket sales. Cause we don't want to put nine eleven cash in our pocket. Well, that's definitely worth the price of admission. And before I let you go and we, I will very soon, uh, I'm going to throw you a, a weird curveball that will make up for my having forgotten to mention building seven earlier in the interview. And that is, okay, so you're, you're a New York-based media professional filmmaker guy, and you, you know your way around that uh, that area. So, I, you know, I have a friend named Tony Zambodi, and Tony is one of the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. He's the guy who convinced Geraldo Rivera that, indeed, 9-11 was an inside job. Geraldo apologized to the truth movement once on his show and then never spoke about it again, thanks to Tony. Anyway, Tony Zambodi uh, is 100% certain that sometime in the fall after 9-11 on a local New Jersey station on a locally produced show, he saw Larry Silverstein elaborate on his famous confession that he pulled Building 7. And in this interview, Larry Silverstein very specifically uh, said that he had been involved in the controlled demolition of Building 7. And nobody's ever been able to find a copy of this show that was publicly broadcast on local TV out of New Jersey in the fall of 2001. Do you have any ideas how we can find it? Um, I think you have to reverse engineer when you say local TV in New Jersey, New Jersey is a big state. And, you know, I think you have to start with what station was it? Um, I mean, here's the troubling thing about that question. Um, it is not hard given our connected internet world that we now live in to make information like that disappear. It's not hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was one three quarter inch tape of that interview and there is, it was before there were digital files. So there's no storage. It's not sitting on a drive anywhere. And all it would have taken is somebody going into the tape archive and going, you know, why don't we just throw that in the garbage? And it will be, you know, and today the minute people see things, they record them. They record it with their cell phone. They, you know, that would never vanish today. But back then, someone would have had to have been very on the ball to either get that from the TV station or record it off the air um, on a VHS or something. Um, yeah, I mean, 
I, I, I spend a lot of time on Google and I see things about 9-11 that I haven't, like every day I find something new. Um, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a treasure hunt and it would take, um, and it's, by the way, it's an important question. And by the way, you know, Silverstein's what, 95 years old. He's no spring chicken. Maybe yeah, a life sentence he, for him wouldn't be that long, so he should just confess. You know, um, but he won't. <laughs> Probably not. Um, yeah, no, I, you know, I, I, I confess to being baff, baffled. I mean, I've read everything about Building Seven, and you know, and I, I understand the museum's answer to the question, but it doesn't seem very satisfying. Okay, well, we'll definitely have to agree on that one. <laughs> so yeah. thank you so much, uh, Steve Rosenbaum. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I really enjoyed your film, and I appreciate that you're using this film to start a conversation. It needs to be had, and more people need to do what you're doing. You know, people like me who are just hammering on this issue from the hardcore, all-out 9-11 truth perspective uh, are necessary, too. But getting the word out to the folks who don't know about it yet is even more important and having that broad conversation is, is how you do that. So congratulations will, on a great film. And I'll, I'll ask your listeners, all you have to do is just take the outsider.film and put it on your Facebook page or put it out on Reddit or put it on Twitter or put it on Gab or wherever your community hangs out. It would be hugely appreciated and it will start a conversation. Okay, sounds like a plan. The Outsider.film. Thanks, Steve. Great talking with you. Thank you. you. Bye-bye.